0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: The scripture reading today is from Psalm 19, 1-14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from his faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to be to God.
0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this will be our second of six messages uh, in our Worship Connect Serve Fall series. We're talking about six essential practices that uh, are designed by the one who created us to lead to our own health and flourishing. And uh, I'll start this way. Nutritionists have this consensus uh, among them that the Mediterranean, Mediterranean diet uh, is – One of the best ways to eat Uh, major ingredients as you might imagine are the usual suspects in this mediterranean diet lots of fruits lots of vegetables lots of protein lots of grains and so on what's unique about the mediterranean diet however is that the staple the centerpiece of the diet is olive oil Uh, i was just having dinner uh, with a friend the other night a couple of friends the other night we were um, fans of the Mediterranean diet and diets like it. And at some point in the dinner, one of the, one of the friends said, the purpose of eating food is to get olive oil into the body. So uh, everything else is just a delivery device for olive oil, according to our friend. But uh, if you look at the current series, it, what, it, what it really is about, if you distill it down, is nutrition for the human soul. You know, even Jesus said, my food and my drink, my food, my drink, this is the perfect human being, is to hear the will of God or to hear the Word of God and then to do it. The olive oil, you could say, of the, uh, the best nutrition for the soul, the olive oil is the Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. You know, Jesus said about Scripture itself Man or a human being does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus practiced this. If Jesus was a balloon and you popped him, the air that would come out of that balloon when you popped it would be all kinds of Bible words and Bible truths. When he was tempted in the wilderness uh, four times, he was tempted fiercely by by the devil, and, and every single time, Jesus countered a temptation with, it is written. And then he would quote Scripture from memory. From the cross, you know, he showed us what it meant to die valiantly, to give oneself away, uh, and, uh, and to do so for God and, and for fellow human beings. And, and as he was doing that, he was quoting Scripture, Psalm 22 into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, my Father, my Father, why, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are all quotations from Scripture. Jesus envisioned the same kind of relationship for us with the Bible. When he prayed for all of his followers uh, then and all who would come after him, he, he prayed this in John chapter 17. I want you to sanctify them, Father. In other words, make them healthy. Set them apart by making them healthy. Sanctify them how? How? By the truth, and your word is truth. If I am a follower of Jesus, then it also means I'm a follower of the Bible. If I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ, it means I'm in a deep, vital relationship with the Bible. The two go together, they're inseparable. This is the second ask, therefore. This is the second sort of building block around spiritual health. Remember last week we talked about the importance of being fully present with the local church every single week, including when you're out of town. Find a local church when you're out of town. Right, because the body of Christ, the people of God, and being with God in the presence of the people of God, God does something. He shows up. He moves. He works. He animates something the same way that healthy food works in the system, and we don't even perceive necessarily how, but we've got the promise that He works, in the same way when we are present with Jesus every day through the vehicle of Scripture, first and foremost, form a Bible habit, in other words, or as Eugene Peterson said, take the Bible and eat this book. You know, the prophet Jeremiah chapter 15, he says, Your words, Lord, were found and I ate them. Your words have become to me a joy, the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Even here it says that the, the words of God are sweeter than honey. Sweeter than honey. They're delicious. They're meant to be delicious. And, 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 and we need to cultivate a taste for it until it becomes so. And so there there are basically three headings I'd like to explore this theme uh, together with you uh, beneath. The first is to open our eyes, the second is to eat the book, and then finally to savor the taste. Okay, so so first of all, to open our eyes. The the first six verses, you may have noticed it, and it was also, you know, the offertory today, which was lovely. Uh, It was based on the first few verses of the 19th psalm. And the first six verses show us how God proves his own existence without Scripture. He proves his own power and his nature and character, in other words, through creation, through nature. You know, the psalm starts this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork day and night. It reveals knowledge. In other words, water, earth, sky, birds aardvarks, they're all preaching to us that God is powerful, that He's creative, and that He's there. In a sense, you, you have a statement here that, 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 that challenges, with all due respect, atheism, atheism, the belief that there is no God. And, and, and here and in the New Testament, there, there, there's, a, there's a challenge that, 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 that to declare that I do not believe in the existence of God might actually mean that I'm more intellectually dishonest than I am honest. Please stay with me if, if you're here and you claim to be an atheist. I, I'd, I'd like to, to, to point to uh, an interview that uh, is on the internet with Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is an English actor. He's a comedian and writer. And he's a, a very uh, outspoken atheist, and uh, it's, it's, it's this interview that he did where he was asked, what if you're wrong about God? What if God does exist, and after your life is over, you face Him? What will you say? And, and Stephen Fry said, I, I would say this, I would say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world with so much misery that's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Now, got to respect him for being honest. Got to respect him for for expressing what he really thinks and what he really feels. But I I couldn't help but… but observe as as I'm listening to this interview, would anybody be that angry with somebody that they thought was a fictional character? I've never seen somebody that angry with the Joker in Batman, and the Joker was really awful. I've never seen anybody that angry with Ebenezer Scrooge for exploiting his workers, which is a horrible thing. I've never seen anybody that angry with the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz, even though she was an awful person. You can only be that angry, I think, with somebody you actually do believe exists. You just hate them. You have issues with them. And who doesn't have issues with God? I have issues. I have an issue, just like Stephen... Fry does with children who get cancer. I have a big issue with that. The only difference is we interpret that issue differently. We have a different lens. Yeah, but Romans 1 also says that we can suppress the truth of God. It's there. We know it. We can suppress it, but we can't deny it. You know, Romans 1 goes on, for what can be known about God is plain to everyone. For his invisible attributes, namely his inter- eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So we are all without excuse, Romans says, for although they knew God, they did not honor or give thanks to him. It's like when you say to somebody that you're done with, you're dead to me. Well, they're not really dead. Like they're still there. They still exist. You would acknowledge they're still live, but they're dead to you. I think that's what the Bible is saying atheism is about. It's not that I think he's not there. It's that I'm done with him. It's like C.S. Lewis said about his previous life of atheism. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford scholar turned Christian. He said, I was, when, I was, when I was an atheist, I was angry at God for not existing. As Shakespeare would say that thou protestest too much. You can't get that angry at a fictional character. You know, there's an alternative to this. We, to, to openly and honestly acknowledge all that's fractured and broken and messy and hurting and, and bloody in the world while also seeing what's there and that's beautiful that that, that creates wonder. So I'm having this conversation, and this is a discipline. You know, we're talking about connect groups. This is a great thing to do with a connect group, with a group of people, to to practice the discipline of noticing what's beautiful and of noticing what's amazing and of noticing what's clearly evidence of God. So I'm sitting down with three other guys last Thursday, and we decided to do that for a few few moments. And the first person that spoke up said, seahorses. What do you think of seahorses? What do seahorses say about God? I mean, you've got this little thing and it's it's got this this hooked little tail and it swims backwards and its head looks like a horse looks like a horse man like just stop and think about that how did that happen and then another one spoke up and said chlorophyll the stuff that makes leaves turn green amazing fossil fuels That come out of the ground and give power to machines, faces, fingerprints, no two alike in the universe. They were just getting detailed about like, how do you explain this stuff, right? This is without the Bible. And then the question. It's a legitimate one. How about science? I mean, science tells us we live in a closed universe with laws and, and these laws can't be broken and, and therefore religion, especially religion like Christianity that has miracles attached to it, implausible. Two can't go together. Virgin birth, turning water to wine, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, making a blind person see, telling a person who's been paralyzed their whole life to stand up and walk. Raising people from the dead, coming up from the dead yourself, that, that stuff doesn't work in a, in, in, in a universe that has rules. And these are all violations of the rules. You know, I was asking a, a world-renowned scientist who's part of our community, he's a leader in our church, what do you say to that? Because I know you've got to be in these conversations on a pretty regular basis. And he says, oh, this, was an e- this one's a pretty easy one. He says, I, I, I tell my friends who challenge, you know, my belief in God on the basis of miracles and miracles not being able to happen, that everybody believes in miracles. Let's just talk about what we all think about the origin of the species and the origin of nature itself. Everybody believes in a miracle. And he says, I as a theist believe in the miracle that, that a divine power made it all. Those who don't believe in a divine power believe that it all made itself. Both are miracles. Both are, are things that just aren't likely to happen, especially when you throw the, the seahorse and the fingerprint and the human face and, 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 and personality into the picture. My friend says something along the lines of, you know, God did the natural miracle by by creating this universe and all the laws by which it works, but that is actually what explains the the plausibility of the supernatural. If he can make all this, of course he can change his own rules along the way to make a point and get a message across, can't he? And so, you know, for my friend, faith is a much more intellectually plausible thing than than the leap of faith, of believing in the miracle, that that everything was created by its own self. But nature, and and this is what this psalm wants us to understand, nature by itself is insufficient. You will never know what you need to know about God until you know Scripture. That's why Jesus says we have to live by every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. We have to live by it because nature or creation is God's nonverbal communication. It's his nonverbal, and it's so easy, like, like you, you can look at a piece of art that an artist creates, and you can say, this piece of art means this, and the artist standing right behind you and says, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. It means this. And and you can't argue with the artist who created the art. You have to change your understanding because the artist who created the art has just revealed to you why she created what she created and what it means. You don't have any right to say, no, it means this, or it means this to me, so there. No, it means this because I'm the creator, and this is why, and this is the purpose for which I made it. See, nonverbal communication is interpreted and clarified through verbal communication. This is why we have words, 66 glorious books that, 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 that are meant to taste delicious to us, even the hard parts. You know, and some of us say, well, you know, I, I reject the Bible because I believe in a God of love, and the Bible has some things in there that make me uncomfortable and that feel incompatible with what I think love is talk about sin and judgment and ex- exclusivity, that you, you can't be in relationship with God without Jesus. Like, I believe in a God of love, so no thanks to the Bible. And, you know, this is where Tim Keller's line of thinking was really helpful to me. You know, Tim asked the, 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 the rhetorical question, well, where, where do you get your idea of love then? Do you get it from nature where there's cancer and dementia and malaria and hurricanes and volcanoes and avalanches and tornadoes? Or do you get your idea that God is love from the animals? The way that they eat each other? Or do you get your idea of love from the way that, that human history tells you about love? The way that humans treat each other? Is that where you got your idea that God is love? And this is where... Uh, This is where Stephen Fry, the the atheist from England, has a lot of integrity. You know, this is something I really respect. You know, he says, all right, maybe there is a God. But if there is, that God is more like the Greek gods than a God of love. Because if God was a God of love, there's no way the world could be like it is. You know, the Greek gods, the, the ones who were capricious, distant, moody, and violent. He says, I can, I can embrace the existence of that kind of God. But a God of love is lost on him. I, I appreciate the honesty. You know, Keller goes on, he says, how about world religions? Is that where you get your idea that God is love? Because there's not a single Muslim who would tell you that that's what God is about, love. A Muslim would tell you God is to be feared. There's not a single Hindu that would tell you God is love. You know, the Hindu would say you're gonna, you're, you, you find God wherever you find him in nature because God and nature are one and the same, which is kind of terrifying because animals eat animals and all the other stuff I said. You're not going to be able to find a Buddhist who says that the, the essence of God is love because a Buddhist is going to say um, you know, the, the, the truth, the beauty, all of it is, is inside of you. And what you have to do is you have to find it and, 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 and draw it out and, and, and uh, you know, self-actualize. Buddhism doesn't have any concept. No Buddhist would say God is a personal God. And so, you, don't, you can't even find the idea that God is a God of love from the major world religions. The only place where we are told that God is love, is the Bible. The Bible. And so the Bible itself says, eat this book. Daily diet. Devour it. Be voracious with it. Each morning, each afternoon, each evening, whatever is the best, least distractible time of your day, Be fully present with Jesus Christ every single day by being fully present with the Bible. Because, and here's the why, verse 11, in eating it, in digesting it, in keeping God's law, his testimony, his precepts, his commands, there's great reward. And you may not you know, feel or discern the experience of that great reward immediately, right? I mean, Isaiah makes the promise, my word will never come back to me empty. It will always accomplish something. Just like if if you develop a lifetime habit, this is something I do every single day. I I drop two tablespoons of flaxseed every single day for my brain and for my heart. It tastes kind of gritty and gross, but there is a faith aspect to that, that that a lifetime pattern of daily flaxseed is going to more likely produce health in me than than if I traded that for two tablespoons of sugar or something else. There's great reward, whether we're discerning it immediately or not. It talks about how the soul will be revived, the eyes will be enlightened, the worldview will be made wise, and the heart will be made joyful. So Don Draper, the, the character on Mad Men, a sort of a tortured soul and a successful advertiser said this about advertising in one of the episodes. He said, advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams reassurance that whatever you're doing is okay and that you are okay. Don Draper's saying the goal of advertising, whatever it is it's advertising itself to you, whether it's the Bible or cocaine or anything in between. You know, if there's a health continuum, cocaine advertise, advertises itself to you. The Bible advertises itself to you. Um, you know, Publix and Kroger advertise themselves. You know, Mazda and, 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 and Honda advertise themselves. We've got all this advertising, right? And all of them are saying to us, I'm competing for your attention, I'm competing for your affection, I'm competing for your resources, and I want to convince you that I am the answer for the optimization of your happiness. The Bible's telling you that, and cocaine is telling you that. Where are you going to be on this continuum? Where are you going to be? I'd say a lot of American Christians, if the Bible's here and cocaine's over here, a lot of American Christians are right here with sex, money, and power. All are good things. They're slightly on the good side. They're kind of morally neutral until we try to intoxicate with them, until we try to build our lives on them. And then they kind of move over in this way, and they become like cocaine. Where you invest your love, Marcus Mumford says, you invest your life. And what is love? I love what Philip Johnson said at the, the recent Labrie Nashville conference. He says, love is this. It's not how you feel. Feelings are a byproduct. Love is, I love this definition. Love is committed attending. It is committing to pay attention. Committing to to keep your eyes upon. And whatever it is that, that I am committed to attend to, Like a socialite attends to his networks, a CEO to her company, a politician to his campaign, a mother to her children, an athlete to her body, a Christian attends to daily graces. A Christian attends to being fully present in a local church every single Sunday. And fully present with Jesus every single day because love is committed attending it's a hierarchy of values where i invest reveals what i really believe will make me most happy see i can say that i love being healthy but if my diet consists primarily of things that are saturated with fat and sugar and salt what i really love is the comfort that these delicious fatty, sugary, salty things give me. I don't, I don't really love health. I, I love the idea of health, but I don't love health. I can say to you that I love reading, but if, if my free time is really spent more watching Netflix, then, 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 then I really don't love reading. I love the idea of reading. You know, the Netflix CEO recently was quoted as saying that Netflix's number one competitor is sleep. <laughs> I can say that I love Jesus, but if there's really little place in my time for the church and for the Bible, then then my life is really telling a different story. I love the idea of Jesus, but I'm not sure that, that I'm committed in my attending to him. Am I? And I say, well, I have no time because I'm so busy. We're saying that more than ever, and what's different now than 10 years ago is social media. I'm I'm, I'm on social media. I value it. I think it has a very redemptive positive use, but it can also take us away from the things that our committed attending should be focused on. In 2019, the average person is on social media two and a half hours a day, that's 17 and a half hours a week or 910 hours a year or 38 days a year we're on social media that's what you call a recipe for a malnourished soul you know, doc shepherd the actor said social media it makes me think about me too much it makes me commit my attending to me you remember what happened in Narcissus and in the, you know, the Greek myth, it's not really a myth, it's where we get our word narcissism, where we're just constantly looking at and evaluating ourselves. He died of self-absorption. There's something bigger that our souls are made for. And so, so really what the, the Bible's after is the simple reallocation of time. One full day out of seven goes to God and the people of God and acts of justice and mercy and personal rest one day of seven, commit it, attend to it. You will be healthier for it. Don't commit to it. Don't attend to it. You will be less healthy for it. And then one hour, let's just say one hour out of 24, or a half hour out of 48 half hours every single day, just taking it in. See what happens. Verse 19 talks about meditations that are pleasing in God's sight. That's when we marinate. That's when we do what the Psalms do, just savoring God's attributes. He's infinite and eternal and unchanging in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These these are the attributes of God. These are the truths that bring about health. And then lastly, we're invited to savor the taste. I'm running to the finish line here. To savor the taste, the 34th Psalm says, taste and see, that the Lord is good. He's saying, you know, be like a kid in a a candy shop with the attributes of God. Roll them around your tongue. Let them melt in your mouth. Engage them. Think about them. Obsess about them. Meditate upon what Scripture tells you about God, yourself, your fellow human beings, and the glorious ruin that they are the compassion that they're entitled to, and, and the glory that, that, that's already theirs because they're made in the image of God. Like, marinate in all of what the Scripture tells you about God, yourself, and your neighbor until they become sweeter than honey. Here are two, <clears throat> benefit, here are two significant benefits. There's like a million of them, but I'm, I'm going to leave us with two. Number one, Scripture will make you a wise person. It says even simple people, in verse 7, even simple people are made wiser than their teachers. The more their minds are saturated with the truth of Scripture. You know, even David says in, in the last few verses, help me, Lord, to discern my own errors. Help me to see my own sin. You know, I've talked about this before. Like, my... My 35-year-old self looked back on my 20-year-old self and said, oh, he was such an idiot. And now today, my 50-year-old self is looking back on my 35-year-old self saying, well, he was an idiot. And in 10 years, my 60-year-old self is going to look back on my 50-year-old self and say, he's an idiot. Which means what? What does it mean I am right now? <laughs> it means I'm an idiot. Unless, unless, in keeping God's word, there is great reward. What I need from the Bible is two things. I need the parts that I underline, the parts that encourage me about how loved I am, how forgiven and kept and, and, and held and savored I am by the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I need those parts that I underline, and I also need the parts that I don't. In fact, the ones that I might want to pay a little bit more attention to are the ones that I don't pay attention to or don't want to pay attention to. The correction parts. You know, The great German theologian Adolf Schlatter, what a great name. He was once asked, do you stand on the Word of God? And he said, nope, I don't. I don't stand on the Word of God. I stand under it. Because I'm not there to stand on it, to, to adopt a revisionist approach to, to, to whatever God says or an editorial approach to what God says. It is upon him to, to revise and to edit me. Because that's the, that's the way I'm going to become healthy and whole and flourishing. And then the last one is happiness. You know, the 16th psalm says that eternal pleasures are at the right hand of God. And you can even feel it in this psalm here where he talks about the the word of God as honey. It's, It's delicious to him. It's become that way. Eternal pleasures, the pleasure center of the universe, is at the right hand of God. And what does Scripture tell us is at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your and my emotional and spiritual and volitional, and vocational, and, 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 and monetary, and every other pleasure center. Everything that we surrender to Him, we get back tenfold in, in, in some better way than what we had hoped for. I was having a conversation after the early service. Somebody's like, where, where do I find this joy? I've been in the Bible all my life, and I struggle with joy. And the only thing I can think of is what dying people who've made a habit of reading the Bible as often as they can and being present with the people of God as often as they can have told me as they've died. It catches you. The joy that you have been building toward all your life catches you when stuff hits the fan. I don't know how many people, Todd, we've buried in the last... Seven, eight years, we buried a lot of people, haven't we? I haven't talked to one unhappy dying person at Christ Prez, not one. The last one told me before she died, I have no complaints. I've got a few days left, and I have no complaints. Another one who, who, whose body was being stolen from him and vandalized by disease, I said, why are you so content all the time, man? He said, I've been a Bible reader all my life, and I'm discovering now that it's true. And then another one got diagnosed with terminal cancer way too young. And we went, three of us, Todd and David and I went and visited him and his family at their request, and and he told us all, he said, you know, initially I was asking myself, why me? And then he said, "It, it dawned on me, why not me? Why not me to be the next person for God to use to demonstrate that, that, that not even death can conquer the promises that are in the Word of God? And he spent the rest of his days wearing what he calls happy socks as a statement of defiance against death and mourning and crying and pain in the same way that the Bible defies those things, not just with words, but with a resurrection. And promises that come after that resurrection. So, be fully present with the local church every single Sunday. Even when you're traveling, please find one for the good of your own soul. Be fully present every single day with Jesus Christ. And you will especially find him in the word of God. You know, Jesus is actually the answer to the things that that Stephen Fry is so honestly wrestling with. Bone cancer in children, man, I'm with you on that. That enrages me. What's so comforting, though, is when you look at Jesus, and when he shows up at a tomb, he, he cries tears, and he gets infuriated at death. He gets infuriated at sickness and things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. So instead of being distant and capricious and violent, he's there in it with us, and he even takes it upon himself, dies on the cross. <laughs> gives his life up. He, he dies young. He's the, he's the son who dies young, and the father weeps over that as well, and the spirit groans and grieves. All for us, so he could now set a table for us and give us some nutrition. Eat this book, and God will nourish you. Will you stand with me, please? We're going to to our confession of faith as we prepare to approach the Lord's table that He's prepared for us. As the kids come in and as everybody who's serving at the table, if you could please make your way to your table now as we're doing this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit,